Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquished death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So Pilate asked him again. Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify, Crucify him, him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, Hail King, King of the, of the Jews. Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. The The word word of the the Lord. Worship is a conversation with God. Our lives unfold one conversation at a time. So let's pray. Father, here we are on Palm Sunday, the entrance to the city of Jerusalem where your son will die. It's a day of mixed emotions. And I'm sure in this room, people have come from many places and many emotions this morning. At least three. There are those in the room this morning whose lives are just thriving. They're in the Proverbs. Proverbs say that when you work hard and make good decisions, life goes well for you. Everything's ordered in its place. God is presiding but not bothering us. For those whose lives are thriving, we give thanks and we bless you, God. And may it continue. Others in the room come from the place of diving. Their lives cut by the deep discontinuities of life, divorce, disease, disasters, shootings, violence, famine, war, loss of job, loss of relationships, struggling children. It's then in diving we find ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes, which says you will live long enough to be unhappy and unstable. For those who are diving, we pray a healthy and rich lament. We pray for endurance and the right number of tears. We pray that they would see and sense Jesus sitting down on the mourner's bench right beside. Then there's those in the room who are survivors, surviving. Arguably the most bitter word in the English language. And if it's applied to you, it means you're still alive and that's a good thing. It also means you've suffered. Cancer survivor, crash survivor, Holocaust survivor. For the survivors in the room this morning, we pray the restoration of your salvation in their life, the emotions of joy and hope. For those just going through the motions, just trying to hold on, we pray, as Vernon Grounds used to pray, that the ruts of routine become the grooves of grace. 
May we see you again in the land of the living. Wherever we're coming from, as we walk into the Jerusalem gate, may we see you on the cross today, Jesus. And what it means that you died in the dark. And speaking of darkness, Lord, just one more thing on my mind yesterday and today that I wanted to spend this moment praying with the flock at Waterstone, and that's this, that we would join these teenagers leading our country and cry out to you for the end of violence in our schools. We stand with them. We know it's a complex issue. There is no quick fix or one fix. There's room for debates, even at churches, even at Waterstone for mental illness and gun control and the safety of schools and the environment. And there's many things involved. And let the discussions begin. But Lord, we would pray that you, you would prevent another shooting from happening. That you would protect our children, that you would give us wisdom and guidance to stand with these teens. We commit our schools to you, our teachers, our children, and ask for your help, your guidance, your safety. These things we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. When Jesus was born, it was brightness at midnight. And when he died, it was darkness at noon. As the gospel writers depict the death of Jesus, they are very concerned with what visual artists call artistic values. Things like the interplay between dark and light, and they are very concerned that we know that the bulk of events around Jesus' death happen in the dark. When Jesus is betrayed, when Jesus is denied, when he has his trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, all of that happens in the dark. His trial before the Roman authorities, Pilate, happens at sunrise. He is beaten and flogged and abused, but he is on the cross by nine in the morning on a busy road on a mounded hill that was shaped like a skull and thus called Golgotha, which means a skull, or in Latin, Calvary. Very public spectacle for everyone to see. And then at noon, there is a mysterious, inexplicable darkness that comes over the land from noon till three o'clock, and we know that Jesus dies in the dark in the middle of the day. This morning, with you, I would like to ask why. What does that darkness mean? How do we respond to Jesus dying in the dark for us? Before we go into the darkness, though, I want us to trace at least one thing, uh, one ray of brightness in the text. And that brightness in the text is how Jesus carries himself and his deportment through 
the trials. It's interesting that Mark, the most concise of all the Gospels and the most concise in the death account of Jesus, certainly knew more things about how Jesus died because Peter, an eyewitness, was speaking into Mark's ear as Mark was writing. More things happen, but Mark is very concerned not to tell us everything he knows, but everything we should know about the death of Jesus. And Mark's choices are very theological. For instance, he wants us again and again to be reminded that this is the king of the Jews, the Messiah, who is dying. Even the darkness is prodding and poking and beating him. Even the darkness is calling out, though, that this is the king of the Jews. But Mark's also concerned that we know everything that is happening is according to plan. Mark and Jesus have been reminding of that us since the turn in chapter 8 when we restarted the Mark series in January. We read these words. They were on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who were followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. And I want you to notice the detail. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, because you always went up to Jerusalem. It's where God was. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Everything happens according to plan. And we note Jesus' calm, his poise, as he has committed and submitted himself to the Father's will. The silent strength of Jesus. We see him. In even initiating the plan. For instance, you'll remember last week or two weeks ago when Daniel preached on the Passover and the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples, you go find a man carrying a jar of water and ask him where the room is where we will have a Passover. You, you need to understand what's unique about that is that in Jesus' culture, a man never carried the jars of water. It was women's work. But Jesus wanted no mistake made about where they would celebrate the Passover. And then he tells them that in the dark, Judas will betray and Peter will deny. And then, remember, there was a skirmish when Jesus was arrested after Judas betrayed him. Peter, the other gospels tell us, took a sword and sliced off a guy's ear. And Jesus fixed his ear and said, back down, back off. Everything that's happening now, and I quote, is to fulfill Scripture. There is a plan at work. Jesus is initiating the plan. It's even seen more strongly in what Jesus says. During the overnight trial in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, Mark tells us that Jesus spoke once. And here's what he said to the Jewish high court they asked him, are you the Messiah? And he said, I am. Now, again, you might remember that that's the Old Testament name of God, I am. And you will see the Son of Man. Again, you may also remember that that Son of Man is not a title about Jesus' humanity. Rather, it refers to the book of Daniel where we read that there's one like the Son of Man who stands at the right hand of the Ancient of Days 
To use the Son of Man in reference to yourself would be the highest claim to deity a human being could make. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Could we just say that if you wanted to get yourself killed by a Jewish court, that would be what you would say? Jesus is not a victim, he is a volunteer. And then notice what he says to the Roman authorities in chapter 15. Pilate, the military commander for all of the army in Jerusalem and Judea, are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. And the only time Jesus speaks to defend himself to the Roman authorities, he says, you have said so. Scholars tell us that could be translated, yes, whatever. (laughs) Now imagine that you're standing before the most powerful Roman authority, and he asks you a question that could save your life. And you say, well, let me just ask you this. You've been in arguments, and I know you've said it, because I know I've said it, when you say to someone in the heat of an argument, yeah, whatever, what are you saying? You're saying two things. First of all, I don't care what you say, I'm right. And second, let's just be done with this, shall we? Yeah, whatever. In other words, If you want to get yourself killed by a Roman general, this is exactly what you say. Jesus is not a victim. He is a volunteer moving God's plan to fruition. Now, I want to ask just what this means for Mark's readers. What would they take from this model of Jesus standing before Jewish and Roman authority. Simply this, Jesus fully knows that within 10, 15, 20 years, some of his own followers are also going to be standing before Roman authority and asked to give witness for whom they believe in. We, we see this, how it impacted the early church in Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he actually remembers this incident. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession. Confession is Jesus is Lord in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you, Early church, you, Waterstone, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This model shaped the early church, and it continues to shape us even on the hardest days of my life. Here's here's the point I think we can stick in our pockets and take out of here today. This, Jesus is in control on the worst day of his life means that Jesus is also in control on the worst day of yours. This is really important because sometimes I think we get this upside down. Circumstances that happen in your life 
are not proof of God's love. The cross is proof of God's love. We tend to think that God's love and acceptance of us is directly proportional to the amount of comfort in our lives. That is not biblical, nor the life of Christ, nor healthy to think. Circumstances are not proof of love. The cross is proof of love. So when we suffer, the cross says that God has not abandoned you, that he is not punishing you, that he still loves you and has plans for your life, even, and I would add, especially when we suffer. Circumstances are not proof of love. The cross is proof of love in your hardest circumstances. Kate Bueller is a professor at Duke University. She was diagnosed with cancer, began to spend a lot of time in what she called chemotherapy therapy rooms. She had the chemotherapy for her cancer, but the things she learned in the room where the chemotherapy was became therapy to her. She writes this, and I think it's timely for us understanding that circumstances are not proof of love. The cross is proof of love. I can't reconcile the way the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, except I am beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. I see a middle-aged woman in the waiting room of the cancer clinic, her arms wrapped around the frail frame of her son. She squeezes him tightly, oblivious to the way he looks down at her sheepishly. He laughs after a minute, a hostage to her impervious love. Joy persists somehow, and I soak it in. The horror of cancer has made everything seem like it is painted in bright colors. I think the same thoughts again and again. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. What would it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream that says you are limitless? Everything is not possible. The mighty kingdom of God is not yet here. What if, the ri what if rich did not have to mean wealthy and whole did not have to mean healed? What if being people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with Good news, God is here. We are loved. It is enough. And so before we enter to the darkness, we trace this thread of brightness through the text. Jesus' poise and his endurance because he fully submitted himself to the Father's will and understood that even though circumstances have no rhyme or reason and may say otherwise, still, Jesus is in control on the worst day of your circumstances. And now, we enter the darkness. It's noon. Jesus is on the cross, and darkness covers the land. 
What is this darkness? Well, many have tried to give, you know, a natural cause for the darkness. There are those who have written that it is an eclipse. Now, there's two problems with that. And they're just trying to say it's an eclipse to eliminate the miraculous. But as you know, eclipses generally only happen, at least in human recorded history, for only a few minutes at a time. We experienced one last September. It was an amazing event. But just a few minutes. This was a three-hour darkness. And so to say that this was an eclipse would have had to mean the sun stopped moving, which would have been asking a miracle to explain a miracle. Besides, Passover, when this happened, is a full moon, and an eclipse can never happen during a full moon. The other theory that's been floated is that it was a Sirocco, a desert storm in the Middle East that darkens the sky. But the problem with that is those you see, you can see coming for days, takes days to get here, lasts for days, and days to move out. This was a three-hour window of time, too brief of time for a Sirocco and it was spring, and there's no Sirocco's in the spring, so it would have taken a miracle to explain away a miracle. Here's the deal. We, we're always captured by our worldview. And you walked into the room this morning, there's two kinds of people here today. There are those who live and have a worldview that it, this is an open system, and that God, who made it, is still in the habit of bringing things that happen every day in heaven down to earth for uh, an abnormal moment. We call them miracles. But if you believe in an open system of reality here, you're saying, well, God could still, because he's God, do these kinds of things. Or you walked into the room this morning and you have a closed system that if there is a God, he never does this sort of thing and everything can be explained away by science or other human explanations. You either believe in an open system or a closed system. The only question I would ask you is, uh, whatever your belief is, do you have evidence to support it? Have you done research, reading, and do you look for evidence to support your worldview? Have you reflected on it? And that leads to the second thing. Do you realize the implications of your worldview? It's one thing to say, I believe this and that. It's another thing to really think it through and say, well, if that's true, then in a closed system, when I die, I'm done. Word for, world. Worm food. And really nothing in life matters ultimately. And really where do things like beauty and love come from? Are they just human inventions and constructs from evolution? Or why are they so heavy in my heart? You, you need to accept the implications of your world view. We're saying that this was a spiritual darkness, a divine event that happened. God brought this darkness down. Why? Well, it's not the first time in the scriptures we've come across day darkness. First one was in Exodus chapter 10. During the plagues, the second to the last plague, Egypt was doing its, uh, or I mean Israel was happily going about its slave business in Egypt, and it was light over Israel in Egypt, but over the rest of the land in Egypt, it was a, quote, darkness to be felt. It was that uh, cave darkness that Nick mentioned from our, our former missionary, Doug um, Wilson, who was a world-class spelunker before he became a missionary. By the way, I was telling friends over there that the darkest place I've ever been was the cave at Casa Bonita. So, uh, <laughs> I've experienced darkness. <laughs> you see, what is darkness? Darkness is the absence of light. 
So darkness comes when God begins to pull his presence out of an area or a situation. Darkness is the absence of light. Light is the metaphor for the presence of God. And so when darkness comes over the land, God's presence is being lifted and removed, and it becomes dark. Why? Why? Well, Amos talks about it as well. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord. Uh, And this is interesting, right? This is written 600 years before Jesus is on the cross. But in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads and I will make that time like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. You see Amos 600 years before Jesus, he's as, as it were, not literally, but figuratively on top of a mountain, and he's looking ahead. And God's talking in the situation there about, uh, you know, the fall of uh, Jerusalem to Babylon 600 years prior. But he sees ahead the cross and, and the Son of God on the cross, uh, dying at noon, mourning for an only son. And then he looks ahead and sees in his prophetic vision the, the end of time, the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. In Revelation 8, it tells us there will be darkness for a period of time. The sun will be blocked out again. Why? Because God's presence will be lifted up and he will begin to judge the world. God is so passionately in love with his world and what he's made and so full of ownership for it that he is determined to settle every account. He is determined to fix everything that's wrong. He will bring divine justice. He will have an emotional response to what we've been doing to the planet. And in doing that, part of that judgment is to remove his presence. And so that judgment can happen. Divine justice will be executed. Jesus is beginning to absorb in his body the wrath that was due our sins. And he is dismantling evil in the dark and he is preparing that God will be able to forgive every sinner and still be just and holy. All of this is happening with the darkness setting in now. Let me be clear. What is happening here is two things. When it goes dark, the Father is placing the concentrated load of your sins and my sins on his son, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of the brokenness of the planet, all of the fallenness, everything that's wrong and broken is being now concentrated on Jesus and God's presence is being removed so that he can judge everything that's wrong. The Bible talks about this everywhere. In Isaiah, 700 years before this moment, he was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brings peace is placed on him. Peter writes that Jesus bore in his body our sins on a tree. Paul writes that he who knew no sin became sin for us. In that moment, all of our sin placed on Jesus in the dark. But there's more. And this is why Jesus' suffering was unlike any other kind of suffering before or since. 
It's not only that God is putting sin on the lamb, but he's also turning away so that he can judge the sin. You understand that this is the first time in the existence, the eternal existence, that Father and Son have been separated. You understand that the Father is turning away from his own Son so that he can judge sin and still be able to forgive us because his holiness is still intact. The Father and Son are being separated. That's why Jesus is calling out, my God, my God. It's not just the physical torment. Jesus never mentions the difficulties of the physical torment. He's not saying, my head, my head, my hand. Hands, my hands always say, my God, my God. He's quoting Psalm 22.1, which is the song of a sufferer. But he's also using the words, my God, my God. Now, I only use those words, my, that personal pronoun to people that I'm in relationship with. My Jan, my Jan, my son Luke, my Ethan. I only have relationship with them, and I would only call them my. Why? Because it's a father-son relationship. It's a covenant relationship. And Jesus is now having his father turn away from him so that the father can judge sin. Now listen, if we walk out of here today and you come up to me and said, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard and I'm never coming back, that would hurt my feelings. So don't say it. But if my Jan came up to me after the service and said, that's the worst thing I've ever heard, I'm never coming back, that would be devastating. Why? Because the longer the love, the deeper the love, the more intense the pain of separation. And Jesus willingly is being separated from his father, experiencing hell for us, taking on himself our judgment day. Why? Well, the question is not rhetorical. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is for us and for our sins so that we never have to experience what Jesus is experiencing. And proof of that is that after he dies, we go on to verse 38. Notice what happens after Jesus dies. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain, it's as thick as a wall. It's 60 feet high. It was to separate the holy of holies in the temple, the holy place, the place where the gas-guzzling, glorious presence of God would come down. Only one person, the high priest, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, from the holy nation of Israel, only one person carrying the blood of a lamb could enter that holy place. But when Jesus dies, this temple, the curtain is torn. Notice, so there's no question about who's doing it. From top to bottom, 60 feet high, top to bottom, torn open. Why? So that all may go in. And the all is now underlined in the next verse. Because look who's the first to go in. When the centurion, the centurion is the captain of the execution squad, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now understand, 
This is so good. It, Mark is such a brilliant writer. In the early verse that we opened last fall, Mark 1, 1 and 2, it says this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But then through all the rest of the book, 15 chapters to this point, not once has anyone called Jesus the Son of God until now. The first person to go through the curtain into the presence of God and call Jesus the Son of God is the captain of the execution squad who killed him, a Gentile outsider. I'm telling you, that's grace. So what does this mean? How does Jesus dispel our darkness? Our darkness, two ways. Jesus dispels the darkness of our sin. Some of us walked into the room this morning carrying that sin that always tears us down. We can't nip it, we can't beat it, we keep doing it, we keep living in shame and guilt, we won't, don't want to do these bad things, that we, whatever it is that's our afflicting sin. Or some of us walked into the room carrying a sin we may have committed years ago, but we just can't let it go. What you need to hear this morning is that Jesus forgives you. This is severe mercy here on the cross. He forgives all your sins. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter if you're a centurion, a prostitute, a hitman, or a pastor. You are forgiven. Jesus died on the cross to take your sin away. And not only that, he not only took your sins, he now lived the life you should have lived and he clothes you in that righteousness so when the Father sees you, he sees you as fully righteous. You are forgiven, you are righteous and free. Jesus dispels the darkness of our sin. Look, the cross is proof of love. Whenever you wonder how you are doing with God and how he's thinking of you, the cross always said he has no reservations about you, none. He only has table reservations for you at the day of the Lord at the end of time when you will sit down with the Father. No reservations about you, only reservations for you. I thought someone would say amen after that. That's really good news. And that's Jesus dispelling our darkness. But do you know there's another darkness that we live with? Jesus also dispels it here. It's a darkness called death. Experientially, the truest thing I could say about you this morning is you're dying. The statistics are pretty good. Read an interesting article, Time Magazine, a few weeks back. Something I'd never thought of before. Uh, human beings have this in common with all other living creatures. We all die. Okay, we, we knew that. Here's what I'd never thought of before. Unlike every other living thing, 
human beings are the only ones who know they're dying. So the article talked about a clam that was found in 2006 off the coast of Iceland, the ocean floor. They, however, sea biologists do this. They counted the lines on the clam and determined that this clam was born in 1499. Wow. What did that clam taste like? A 500-year-old clam. Then the article went on to mention, but then there's the Mayflower, and in that 500-year span, or a Mayflower, Mayfly, a Mayfly lives for one day. So since the clam was born, there's been 185,000 generations of Mayflies. But the point the article made is that neither the clam nor the Mayfly has never once done mortal math in their head. You and I, on the other hand, do mortal math every day of our lives. How long we have, death is coming. Some of us think about it a lot more than others. It's coming. I want to ask you, what are you going to do about the darkness of your death that's coming? <laughs> the best that the article had to offer was that if you uh, read Dan Butner's book, he's a writer for National Geographic called The Blue Zones, there's seven areas around the world that have the longest lifespans. There are three things that each of them do. They eat a, a, a plant-based diet, mainly beans. Taco Bell. And then um, <laughs> a good family structure and then uh, a spiritual practice. If you do those three things, you get five to ten extra years. Oh, and then they said, if you really want more than ten years... Go live with the Amish. Do you know that in 1900, the average lifespan in America was 47 years old, except if you were Amish, then you were into your 70s. And even today, the Amish tend to live five to 10 years longer, and they have the lowest rates of cancer and heart disease in the world. Why? Because when you're Amish, you don't have any shiny gadgets in your life, and you walk 10,000 more steps a week. So, here's what you can do about your impending death. Go Amish! I wonder if there's not one more thing. What if you, like the centurion, See how Jesus died, the beauty and the strength of his personality, the way that he talked to his father, the power of God around him. If you see him dying on the cross and realize like the centurion did, truly this was the son of God and realize he's doing it for you. Then, even though you die, you will live. Repent. Some of us are orbiting our lives around everything else that you know isn't where your allegiance should be. Declare Jesus to be the Son of God. Orbit your life and every part around him. And even though you die, you live. I'd like to close the sermon with a prayer. And then after the sermon, Billy's going to come and we're going to sing a song of radical gratitude for Jesus dying on the cross for us. But this morning, if you're here 
and you've never asked Jesus to come into your life and you've never pledged your allegiance to him, pray with me. All of us, let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we first honor you as the creator of everything, all that exists, and we honor you and are mindful that you created me. And my next breath comes from you. And everything I am depends on you. And Lord, I also want to confess that with this life, I've done some bad things. My thoughts, my words, my actions, they've not only hurt others at times, they've hurt you. I've pretended to live like you didn't exist. And I've turned my back on you. Lord, I confess that I'm broken, that I hurt, and I need you. And so Jesus, with the centurion, this hardened Roman soldier, I want to stand with him. And I want to see you on the cross. And I want to say, surely this man was the son of God. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And then I know, Jesus, I know that even though the worst day happens to me, even though I die, it's an upgrade. And I get to go sit at your table, drinking wine with Jesus, under the gazing, loving acceptance of the Father, sitting around a table with the saints of old. Jesus, I guess what I'm saying, I'm yours. I am yours. Thank you, Jesus for everything you've done for me. Amen. Would you stand? Radical gratitude. Let's thank Jesus for what he's done. Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.